and welcome back to the course Food Toxicology. I'm Greg Muller and I'm the instructor for this course. Now over the past uh, 40 or 50 years, no single subject in, in the whole area of food quality and food safety perhaps has garnered more attention than the issue of pesticide residues in food. And in fact, that's the title of today's lecture. What we're going to try to do is not go back in through a history of pesticides or perhaps even the, the uh, more infamous incidents about pesticide residues in food. And neither are we going to try to look at the uh, issues in terms of residues in food, uh, what is good, other than the whole process of how residue and residue tolerances are set. What we are going to try and do is give you a very wide span of knowledge uh, in terms of your learning objectives on how pesticides are used, what they're used for, how they're regulated, under what legal authority that they are regulated, and what some of the major concerns are. We'll try to document some of the residues in terms of the monitoring studies that do appear in the human food chain. Our learning objectives here today, what we're going to try and do is develop an introductory understanding of pesticide use and monitoring in the human food chain. And the reason I say human food chain is because quite often pesticides have the ability to actually travel throughout what uh, some, some refer to as the liposphere. In other words, these fat-soluble chemical compounds actually will translocate or accumulate throughout the food chain. Okay? We're going to try to know the major classes of pesticides. And so you're not going to become an agricultural chemist or a pesticide specialist with one brief lecture, but at least you'll have some knowledge of the diversity of chemical compounds and the diversity of their relative risk. As you can quite imagine, something that is labeled an herbicide, which is toxic to plants, would probably have a lot less mammalian toxicity and therefore less toxicity to us as being the consumers of those food products. We're going to try to understand the legal basis for monitoring. We'll go through this. We've done a little bit of regulatory history in other lectures. What we're going to do is visit, make sure that you understand some of the direct regulatory science management that happens with pesticides as they're used in the human food chain. We're going to try to identify and comprehend the risk versus benefits analysis of some recent changes, and recent meaning in this particular field in the last 10 years or so is the implementation of the Food Quality Protection Act, which is some amendments under FIFRA that we have introduced. We're going to try to take a look at what FIFRA and the Food Quality Protection Amendments have done in terms of changing and updating uh, pesticide regulatory science and the management of pesticides in the human food chain. Well, what are pesticides? And I think that's a great place to start because uh, uh, I, I use a working definition that they are economic and public health poisons. Think about this, if you will, for a minute, that pesticides are chemical compounds that are designed to intoxicate or kill something. Okay? Now, that's scary terminology when you use that, that poison word associated with the food system, but in fact, some of the things that we want to kill taken out of the food context are things that uh, we actually uh, uh, use in terms of our daily lives. And those are public health poisons, things that keep us sanitized. Think of, for instance, the disinfection of drinking water. We are poisoning the microbes, so to speak. 
And so in terms of these chemicals, we are using these chemicals as antibiotics, if you will, not in the classic drug sense, but in something that is anti-life. And we use it to control insects, we use it to control weeds, rodents, if you will, and other pest animals. Now these poisons, these pesticides, and I'm using that loaded term, poisons, are useful also for bacterial and fungal and viral infection in agriculture homes and in public health applications. Next time you go to a, a, a service restaurant, note perhaps that uh, the tables on a routine basis are being wiped down, uh, usually with a squirt bottle and uh, a paper towel. Uh, typically those are uh, microbiocide or biocidal um, uh, chemicals in that spray to minimize the potential pathogen transfer in terms of contaminated table, contaminated surfaces in a public food facility. Now pesticides, they can actually uh, be one of many groups of chemicals that can be natural chemicals, synthetic chemicals, or biological agents. In fact, early in our history in terms of the chemical warfare of humans versus nature in terms of production food systems, we actually mimicked nature, and we still do to a degree, in terms of the chemical warfare and the secondary chemical compounds that plants and animals ex uh, use in terms of moderating their own chemical warfare in terms of the ecological biochemistry. And so some of these chemical compounds, rotenone, for example, which was used by Aboriginal Indians in South America and other places, is actually still cultivated as a root and still in use today, and it's classified as an organic pesticide. It is a very potent, very toxic chemical to some species, but it is still used today. So these natural chemicals actually gave us an idea in terms of ecological biochemistry and the interaction of species, how they thrive and survive. So in essence, uh, there's a little bit of a warfare that we have in terms of combating uh, insect populations uh, and uh, plants uh, in terms of production agriculture and the production of a uh, quality food system. One of the things, and we're not going to go into the uh, uh, perhaps uh, the philosophy of pesticide use uh, or not, um, people do have preferences. They would prefer, for a whole lot of reasons, environmental concern, uh, personal health concerns, they might prefer to eat organic foods uh, that were produced without uh, synthetic chemicals. Now one of the things that you need to know is that no matter what the food type uh, in terms of the, the agricultural production type, whether it is organic or more standard commercial agriculture, there is still chemicals in your food system, and these chemicals are a part of the natural biological defenses. So these natural chemicals that occur in plants as a part of this chemical warfare system is actually a part of your diet. And over the ages, we have found out what foods are tolerated uh, that we don't have an adverse chemical reaction to in terms of uh, eating that particular food product. To give you an example um, of, of what happens uh, when, when we try to encourage nature to do it better. Uh, in uh, the mid-80s, there was a uh, breeding program uh, on lettuce. And lettuce, like any other plant, has some natural uh, insecticides 
produced in it. It has nothing to do with applications in terms of agronomic practice. But the breeders suggested in their development program that by breeding in higher levels of these natural insecticides, they would actually, in terms of their production practices, be able to use less synthetic or man-made pesticides in commercial production. And this actually uh, was a positive experiment at the beginning. In fact, uh, this lettuce, in terms of white fly devastation, which is a particularly uh, bad pest for lettuce production, white fly losses uh, to this lettuce crop were significantly decreased. These, this new breed of lettuce actually expressed the natural chemicals uh, that uh, plants do have in terms of fighting the chemical warfare with uh, adversaries, in this case, the white fly. However, they found out that during harvesting, there was enough of this insecticide, a bioactive chemical, that in fact it caused rashes on the workers that were harvesting it. Uh, so there was a contact dermatitis that developed. There was too much of a natural chemical that actually had a human pathogenic uh, endpoint. So these, this, the kind of balance that we find in terms of, again, fighting this battle in terms of productivity, how many mouths can we feed off of uh, an acre of ground. Now, one of the things that we hope to identify here, we're not going to go through specific calculations, is to try to develop the concept that chemical residues, natural and synthetic, that occur in the human food chain may or may not be associated with risk. And in terms of chemicals that are applied uh, to the human food chain, there is a very significant risk assessment process that allows us to make informed decisions on the whether or not we should use a particular chemical in a particular food type, uh, whether or not processing will remove it, whether or not just growth of the plants will remove it, and whether or not there is risk to human populations and to subgroups of those populations such as children. Now, one of the ways that we do this is actually through uh, monitoring. And there are several monitoring programs. One is the USDA Pesticide Data Program, or the PDP. And this is an annual survey of target uh, commodities for target chemicals. And what they typically would do is a multi-residue screen. In fact, there are hundreds of agricultural chemicals in use. And what we try to do is, is have a select few multi-residue tests that examine, for instance, classes of chemicals. And so these multi-residue uh, analysis screens will actually allow us to see the variety of potential per, uh, pesticide residues that may be on a food product and to quantify them with a high degree of quantitative accuracy. Now, because of the huge amount of data um, in this particular case in 2004, there was 12,446 samples told in this particular program only across the United States. Those samples were then analyzed for perhaps hundreds, uh, up to about 300 different uh, uh, chemicals. Uh, and in fact, uh, what they found in terms of the results is because our analytical chemists are very talented in the hardware and the instrumentation that they have, we can see parts per billion, parts per trillion. So we can see very small residues. The question that is comes to bear is, are those residues above a particular risk threshold? Now, detectable residues were found in 70% of the fruit and vegetable samples and about greater than 50% of the drinking water samples. 
And as we'll see in our discussion here today, it is important to look at the total exposure assessment. And so if pesticides are migrating into the water system, that is a part of your exposure. So it's good to monitor drinking water as well as your food supply. Now what's really important, and we're going to go in through a full-scale definition of tolerance, but tolerance is essentially the legal limit, the legal limit for a residue. Above a threshold called a tolerance, it is a violative or adulterated food. Okay, And in terms of this multi-residue screening, about 0.2% of the sample, that's about 25 samples out of those 12,000, were actually exceeded tolerance. Okay, And sometimes uh, those uh, uh, residues that shouldn't be there at all, they have no legal limit, they have no tolerance, uh, do appear. And they can appear via overspray or they can be historical pesticides, pesticides as we'll discuss like DDT, that stay in the liposphere, that have incredible persistence in the environment and therefore persistence in the food chain, and they still appear even though there is no tolerance or there is no uh, legal limit for that particular residue and food product, but it still appears as a trace. It is a different level of concern than uh, residues that are exceeding tolerances where we have done a full-scale risk assessment. But residues without tolerance occurred in about 5.2% of the samples, and a lot of those actually can be targeted as things like DDT or aldrin, some of the organochlorine, highly persistent organochlorine chemicals that were used in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, that even though they're not in common use, uh, they may be in use in other places in the world, they're not in use in the U.S., they still have a residual concentration in the human food chain and in your body fat. I've put the citation down here in terms of finding out more about the uh, AMS, the Agricultural Marketing Service, and the USDA Pesticide Data Program if you want to read uh, this particular. The summary report is 77 pages. Uh, the full-scale data report uh, is perhaps several hundred pages. And so this is a fairly large-scale program. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why we're about a year and a half in arrears in terms of publication of the final standards. It is a very large-scale program. Uh, a tremendous amount of data is being used in this particular monitoring program. Now, in terms of the U.S., uh, what is our commercial activity? And there was a, a, a significant uh, change in, in the mid-1990s as we reevaluated and actually codified through the Food Quality Protection Act a lot of modern pesticide practices. And so this total revamping actually allowed us to take a look at, uh, take a snapshot and in 1996, there were 865 active ingredients, or AIs. And active ingredients are what the tolerance is uh, written for, okay? And so there might be vehicles, and a vehicle, for instance, something that allows the active ingredient to be soluble in, for instance, a spray solution or an activator. Uh, sometimes it's a dust in a, in a solid formulation. Um, but of these uh, 800 or so active ingredients, about 350 are in the human food chain. So they're actively used uh, in, in agriculture. These compounds are formulated for at different levels for different types of applications. Each one of these applications may have a particular product 
All you have to do is go to your local uh, hardware store, for example, and, and go down the uh, lawn care or garden care aisle uh, and see the range of products that are used in household, uh, urban, uh, suburban uh, yards uh, and, and gardens uh, maintenance. Um, but this comes down to, in total, about 20,000 products or about 9,000 tolerances. Now, these tolerances, which are the legal limits, you've got to remember, are for a specific chemical applied to a specific crop. Okay? So if you have 350 chemicals in the human food chain, how many different crops might you have? Major crops like corn and wheat, and then minor crops like lettuce and uh, cherries, for example. And so you start multiplying this matrix of specific chemicals for specific applications, and that's why you have so many tolerances. Each one of these tolerances requires a tremendous amount of risk assessment and data accumulation, so you see some of the challenge in terms of keeping the human food chain in the United States and internationally, because what we do here in the United States is somewhat the same process that is used uh, globally. I'll have to say that the uh, US EPA and the Food and Drug Administration are actually used in many countries, and especially in second and third world countries, as the final opinion on particular food safety practices associated with pesticides in agriculture. Now, of these chemicals, there's about, uh, in 1996, 1.25 billion pounds of active ingredients being used. And so there is considerable amount of active ingredients. Now, this number seems extremely high, and so some of us will con be concerned in terms of uh, protection of the environment and environmental impacts, and for sure that is part of the risk assessment process. One of the things I want to alert you to is not everything that is an active ingredient or regulated under a food uh, use pesticide is actually something that most of us in common conversation consider to be the toxic uh, or, or poisonous, uh, potentially, um, uh, chemical compounds we refer to as insecticides or pesticides. For example, in terms of using uh, chemical compounds or materials uh, in the human food chain, if you have uh, a food nutrient, I mean an agricultural nutrient like uh, the, the, the blood from a slaughterhouse, uh, it's a coagulated high protein, uh, perhaps, I'm sorry, high nutrient value uh, fertilizer, that actually has to go through a registration process. And in fact, it actually is considered to be an active ingredient. Uh, so uh, there is a review process. Sometimes the review process actually just takes a look at common sense and says, well, this really isn't going to be a concern to go ahead and put sand out in a particular um, uh, farmer's field to increase uh, water flow. And so there is a bit of common sense, but at least there is a panel of individuals that are dictating what should be considered to be a common sense sort of no requirement for tolerance uh, registration and what might have some concern. And so there is a regulatory science infrastructure. Scientists, uh, perhaps even uh, graduates of this class in terms of their future careers, that actually do review the relative risk data associated with chemicals in the U.S. food supply. Now, retail sales, this is a very large scale. Again, it's an economic poison. So there's an economic incentive in terms of the marketplace. There's an incentive in, tw in two dom domains, one in terms of agriculture, in terms of enhancing production. 
if you are limiting loss due to pests such as insects and insect infestation, there is an economic gain to that. As well, there's economic gain in terms of the manufacturers that manufacture these chemical compounds. Okay? That's one of the reasons why I like to refer to these as economic poisons. The retail sales, and this is a 1996 number, were $10 billion in terms of agricultural, non-agricultural use, $8 billion in agricultural use uh, alone. And so this is a very large-scale economic uh, engine in terms of uh, agriculture. Now, the impact of that in terms of uh, savings or uh, increased production in the U.S. agricultural economy uh, probably can be evaluated in the hundreds of billions of dollars, uh, given that uh, California alone is about a $100 billion agricultural economy. Now, historically, uh, in the past, uh, oh, I would say uh, 20 years, uh, there has been uh, some changing trends in pesticide use and regulation. Uh, one of this is because uh, scientists are now, we're, we're now looking into the environmental impacts. Uh, we spoke uh, briefly about uh, the role of uh, Rachel Carson and Silent Spring, that the post-World War II attitudes of better living through chemistry, uh, although a good one was better use, uh, better smarter use, better living through a smarter application of chemistry, was the change in the 60s and 70s. We saw all the benefits of chemicals and we saw the benefits of pesticides, but in fact there was lack of analysis of some of the risks associated with that. And so as we became smarter and the scientists became better at quantifying the relative risks of some of these, we actually started some trends, including things like lower use rate, where we just use less chemical. One of the reasons we started using less chemical was because all of a sudden we started seeing things that uh, pesticide residues would appear um, in uh, animals, non-target species. Uh, we would see lower volume applications. Uh, what's the minimum amount? Uh, more is not always better when it comes to agricultural chemicals. We'll look at things like risk mitigation requirements and, and integrated pest management. And one of the reasons we started going to IPM was we found that uh, nature uh, is extremely resilient and extremely responsive. And overuse of pesticides, and especially insecticides, was starting to breed uh, very um, resistant uh, 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 pests that uh, what used to kill them, what used to knock them back, would no longer have an effect. And it has a lot to do with the numbers and the biological productivity. Uh, we essentially uh, encouraged an evolutionary or microevolutionary response because we were killing off large amounts of the populations of these pests. The ones that were survive had mutations that were significant enough in terms of allowing them to survive near these particular insecticides. We've also seen a lot more conditional registration. Uh, if you're going to use this, you're going to monitor a lot of that. For example, if you're in sandy soils and you're applying something that is going to actually percolate through the soil and perhaps impact the groundwater, uh, seeing that, in fact, uh, it's not impacting the groundwater might be a condition of using that particular chemical. We've seen a drive towards safer chemicals. And how do you define safer? Well, obviously, lower, uh, especially mammalian impact, lower impact to non-target species, 
uh, lower persistence in the environment. If we have highly biodegradable chemical compounds, compounds that degrade, that do their work, and then degrade in a matter of days, these are good chemicals. We've seen a trend towards uh, biopesticide use, and these are chemicals that are actually uh, cloned from nature. I shouldn't use the word cloned, but copied from nature. Uh, they're analogs, uh, slightly modified in some cases. Uh, for example, there's a chemical called spinosad uh, that actually was extracted from a microbe, uh, and it's a very uh, powerful uh, crawling worm uh, uh, pesticide. We've seen a trend towards increased exposure concerns. Uh, uh, folks like farm workers historically have not had necessarily a strong voice in uh, the public plaza. And now we see, uh, in fact, that the patterns and routes and the levels of exposure to workers that work with these on a daily basis are of great concern. Residues are small dose. Application are large dose in terms of potential exposure. So uh, this has been a, a trend in terms of exposure monitoring, and that's been coupled with applicator training in terms of the correct protective gear. You can see in this particular photo, uh, this is a small uh, orchard spray rig. You can see a domed bubble, and it's got a filtered uh, air supply in that particular slide. And so there is a lot more concern in terms of applicator protection, applicator training, uh, knowing how to do it. In fact, uh, most states now have licensed applicators, and there's a strong requirement for continuing education. Again, in high concentration, these chemical compounds are extraordinarily poisonous in many cases, and the workers that are using them in terms of workplace safety, OSHA concerns, uh, they have to be very skilled and highly trained and protected from these particular chemicals. This is not a food residue concern. Now, in terms of the major classes of pesticides, uh, let's go down the list, and we'll talk about some examples in each of these. Um, we have the insecticides, the herbicides, the fungicides, rodenticides to kill rats, um, and uh, uh, when we have the various bactericides, the biopesticides, or the biologicals, biocides as they're called, uh, that, that uh, are antimicrobial agents quite often. We have biopesticides that come to us quite often from nature, and then special application chemicals uh, for a variety of applications. Some of those applications, uh, you probably have, have read about some of these on occasion. Uh, some of them are in the human food chain and some are not. Uh, acaricides uh, for, for mites, algicides uh, for algae. Um, here in Idaho even, uh, some of our lakes are uh, starting to get clogged with uh, European milfoil, and there's applications right now to put uh, the herbicide 2,4-D in some of uh, our state's lakes, and this is a common approach to managing um, algae in uh, water bodies. Avicides, uh, these are chemical poisons to kill birds. Uh, uh, and in fact, if you have uh, an, an, an amount of birds that are, for instance, uh, coming down and, and uh, stripping croplands bare, or there's a problem. Uh, bactericides, piscicides are chemicals to uh, actually kill fish. They're typically used in a situation where an introduced species, for instance, in a, in a small lake, 
has uh, actually killed off all the natural or resident species in that lake. And so because this foreign uh, alien species uh, is now the dominant species, uh, fish and wildlife officers will sometimes decide that they need to kill off all of the fish in the lake and restock it with uh, the um, actual uh, natural species in there. And so they typically will do uh, a, uh, uh, use piscicides for that application. Uh, viricides, molluscicides for mollusks or things like zebra uh, mussels uh, that impact many of our inland waterways. There's insect repellents, uh, there's insect attractants. You'll find bird repellents, uh, mammal repellents as part of these uh, application chemicals that go through a registration process. We'll go through a couple of those. There's some plant growth activators. What happens if uh, you actually use a chemical compound like uh, ethylene to uh, make a tomato uh, larger or grapes larger? Um, uh, they, they grow very, very rapidly. And so there's a hormonal activation, if you will. Uh, these are not necessarily killing things, but these are chemicals that are used in the human food chain. There are also chemicals that don't have necessarily toxicity themselves, but they synergize the toxicity or the activity of another chemical. Chemicals, for instance, like piperinol butoxide that actually have relatively low toxicity, but they make other chemicals mixed with them higher uh, toxicity. And some of the action, for instance, uh, piperinol butoxide shuts down a key liver enzyme system that would detoxify the intoxicating agent. Okay, that's how these things work. One of the things I would invite you to do is actually next time you are in the hardware store is actually take a stroll down the agricultural chemicals aisle and pick up a few products and read its label. These labels are very, very important. They are actually part of the licensing structure. There's a lot of required information on these labels. Sometimes they're pull-out labels. There's a significant amount of information. There's also a warning that is only supposed to be used in the particularly directed application. Okay. And those warnings are actually of great concern. And in fact, trained pesticide applicators typically know those warnings by heart. Sometimes household uh, uh, folks, moms and pops, uh, using chemicals around their yard, not reading the labels, don't realize that are, there are certain chemicals that are okay to use on your roses, but uh, would be quite uh, uh, problematic if you use them in your vegetable garden and then introduce them into your family's food chain. Now, what we're going to do here on the next few slides is go through uh, these classes of chemicals. Uh, I'm going to try to uh, introduce a couple of maybe the major players. This is not supposed to be uh, a comprehensive listing of chemicals uh, classes, nor uh, the chemicals within those classes. This is a familiarization exercise uh, at a minimum. And so what do we have in terms of uh, some of the pesticides? Antibiotic insecticides, abramectin, spinosad uh, are two of the major use ones. Uh, spinosad, as I said, is a natural product uh, where, in fact, uh, uh, a microbiologist for a chemical company uh, actually had a habit of uh, bringing back soil samples uh, whenever he went on holiday or vacation or traveled around the world and actually found, uh, isolated a, a particular microbe, actinomyces, 
out of uh, a soil sample from Hawaii. And this particular microbe had a, uh, exuded an antibiotic compound. Uh, the particular chemical compound, uh, later called spinosad, uh, was modified slightly in terms of giving it enhanced UV stability so it could be used in agriculture, but the functionality of the chemical is what the microbe gave us, in a certain sense, a biopesticide. Uh, we have our cynical insecticides, and these are not used anymore. I give them uh, on this list because, uh, in fact, uh, we have uh, some residual concerns with our cynicals. Uh, lead arsenate was used uh, as an insecticide uh, quite often in orchard crops uh, in the state of Washington and apples uh, for, for quite some time, about 30 or 40 years. Uh, and uh, lead arsenate uh, did its deed, but it's residual, it's persistence because this is an inorganic insecticide. We have lead and arsenic. Its persistence in the environment has been significant. In fact, there are many areas where uh, historically there were orchards, but now the soil is significantly contaminated, typically more so with lead than with the arsenic. Uh, the arsenic can actually be volatilized by many microbes and fungi, um, and it is also far more mobile in the environment. Uh, but uh, there are still contaminated agricultural areas from this particular chemical compound. We have uh, botanical insecticides. Uh, for those of you that uh, choose to smoke cigarettes, note that the nicotine, uh, which uh, the nicotine alkaloid, uh, which uh, satisfies uh, your urging, is also a very potent insecticide. Uh, the tobacco plant and did not think about you smoking uh, its uh, leaves uh, when it uh, decided to biosynthesize nicotine, but in fact. Uh, it is there as a part of the chemical warfare arsenal to protect the tobacco plant from insect invaders. There's pyrethrins. Uh, they're actually uh, a natural product uh, that are extracted from chrysanthemums. There's an active industry uh, in Asia uh, in terms of extracting this particular chemical compound, again, uh, protecting this particular species of plants. Sometimes you'll see gardeners uh, that will plant these kind of flowers near their gardeners because it does tend to have an impact in terms of insect infestations in small gardens. Uh, rotenone is a chemical compound. We show the structure of it here at the bottom of this slide. Uh, rotenone uh, has a historical use uh, in, in many cultures. And again, the aboriginal uh, Amazonians uh, discovered that by grinding the root uh, of the rotenone uh, tree, uh, they could throw this particular grinding into a small water body, and over a period of time, uh, it actually would uh, impact the uh, respiration capability of the fish, and the fish would come to the surface gasping for air, uh, and uh, this is an active piscicide, and it would be an easy target for them to spear or uh, shoot with a, a bow and arrow. Uh, so rotenone has been in use uh, for decades. It is actively cultivated. It is uh, a chemical that is uh, extracted and actually used in organic agriculture as a, uh, an insecticide. There are, because of its piscicidal activities, um, specific uh, limitations on the use of rotenone near any sort of water bodies. In terms of uh, pesticides, we also have uh, pesticides that we have extracted from various bacteria. You'll hear a lot about BT or Bacillus thuringiensis. Uh, it's actually a bacterium that produces an endotoxin, BT toxin. 
Bt toxin, when you hear about GMO or genetically modified organisms or GM food, Bt toxin has been coded into, for instance, corn and soybeans, uh, and in fact, uh, some other species, cotton, for example. Bt, co uh, BT cotton is not a food use, but uh, Bt corn, and we'll talk about this, and other uh, chemicals are potentially, uh, other crops are potentially part of the human food chain. But this is a uh, natural uh, insecticide um, that has been coded into the genetic structure via genetic uh, modification. Carbamate insecticides, uh, the, the other comment, by the way, I can say about BT is that uh, there actually is a chemical product uh, or a registered product, which is actually the microbes itself that you can spray on, for example, orchard trees that will uh, diminish uh, the uh, potential production of uh, worm or crawling insects. The carbamate insecticides are uh, a problematic category uh, because of their mammalian toxicity, their uh, well-known um, uh, acetylcholinesterase uh, inhibitors. Uh, aldicarb, carbaryl, carborofuran, oxymil, there's a couple in that category. Uh, some of these are actually still used um, quite often uh, for uh, nematodes. Uh, in uh, uh, tuber plants, uh, but uh, they are uh, of less interest, uh, less because of their great uh, or substantial uh, mammalian toxicity and potential concern in terms of exposure. Organochlorine insecticides is the class of chemical compounds. Uh, these chemicals, aldrin, dieldrin, DDT, endrin, methoxychlor, pentachlorophenol, several of these appeared on the Dirty Dozen list, uh, which came out in the 70s. These are chemicals that were extraordinarily problematic because of their toxicity and primarily because of their persistence in the environment. And there was a lot of activism to remove these from common use. And in fact, aldrin, dieldrin, DDT, endrin, and PCP or pentachlorophenol are actually removed from most, if not all, uses. Uh, you and I, uh, no matter what our age, uh, uh, and especially uh, folks that have been uh, born after the 1970s, um, even though uh, DDT has not been in use in the United States uh, since that time, uh, it actually still is a residual in our body fat. Each one of us carries a load of DDT and its metabolite, TDE, uh, usually between one to three parts per billion. Uh, that comes to us through the human food chain, uh, the liposphere, if you will. It's a highly fat-soluble uh, chemical, whether it be in plant fats or animal fats. It circulates through the environment, has great persistence. This is one of the reasons it is no longer in use. Uh, pentachlorophenol was PCP, was used as a, uh, uh, a wood post treatment. Uh, many old posts, uh, telephone poles, uh, fence posts uh, were treated with this particular compound as an anti-rot agent. Uh, down at the bottom, you see the aldicarb uh, carbamate moiety, and again, we'll talk about the, the chemistry, if you will, in terms of receptor inactivation for cholinesterase inhibition. The OP insecticides, organophosphorus insecticides, are a class of uh, significant concern in terms of residues in the food, human food chain. Uh, a couple of the, the compounds you may hear about, more popular ones, azenphosmethyl, dichlorvos, chlorpyrifos, uh, phenthion, diazinon. You'll hear mal malathion, uh, parathion as well. 
These chemicals because, again, they're cholinesterase inhibitors. Uh, that's their mode of action. Their neurotoxins, if you will, are of uh, significant risk and therefore monitored in terms of their risk analysis, risk assessment. Uh, many of these chemicals is a, have actually been uh, banned. Uh, azenthosmethyl, because of its environmental impacts and its potential risk, uh, is has been banned from most uses, as has parathion, some of the more uh, uh, bioactive uh, OP in, insecticides. Uh, azenthosmethyl was somewhat famous for California uh, post-harvest, I'm sorry, er, uh, pre-harvest treatment of, of orchards, uh, even though there was no fruit on there. The trees were uh, sprayed with these insecticides uh, prior to the growing season, before the leaves even showed. The problem was that birds of prey would be landing in this, uh, these trees uh, using it as roosts, and there would be dermal toxicity and uptake of the OPs and protected species. Uh, malathion is a lower toxicity OP. It's in reasonably common use. You'll see it uh, in your hardware store. This is what uh, many homeowners will use if they have an insect infestation, for instance, uh, in their shrubberies uh, around their house. Malathion became somewhat infamous in the California uh, uh, citrus uh, infestation uh, in the 1980s. And there were planes that were spraying malathion through many, many counties across California to uh, impact uh, that uh, infestation. Pyrethroid insecticides, um, these come from a biological model as well, fenvalerate, uh, permethrin, resmethrin. There's some concern uh, even uh, that uh, there's some endocrine disruption potential, uh, that they actually have an impact on the human uh, a, uh, endocrine system. Uh, these are regarded in terms of their relatively low mammalian toxicity. Uh, com compounds like fenvalerate have actually been formulated into flea and tick uh, preparations for dogs in terms of uh, uh, skin dermal application. Uh, there's a class of botanical rodenticides. Uh, chief among these perhaps is strychnine from the Nux vomica plant. Uh, strychnine has a somewhat uh, infamous history. Of Given the uh, chemical structure of strychnine uh, alkaloid uh, on this particular slide for you, uh, in the 1904 Olympics, uh, strychnine, like many alkaloids, uh, have a, uh, a potential for biochemical impact uh, on the animal. Uh, it's a, a nervous system exciter, um, and in fact, strychnine was used by a gentleman by the name of Tom Hicks, uh, and uh, in the the uh, one of the uh, early marathons in 1904 in the Olympics. It was a mixture of strychnine and wine, not to say that our marathoners uh, these days necessarily would use strychnine and wine at any point in their race, but it gave him uh, the boost uh, he needed uh, to uh, actually run a race, but it also proved lethal to this particular contestant. Uh, the cumin rodenticides, uh, when you go and you buy uh, decon or other rodenticides, if you have a mouse infestation in your house, some of the chemicals used in that, brodifacum, bromodialone, warfarin. Uh, these are uh, quite often anticoagulants. Warfarin uh, has a very, very interesting history. It was a chemical compound that is used, actually, if you have someone on anticoagulant therapy that has a blood clotting problem, uh, has had a stroke, typically they are on Coumarin drugs. Uh, a warfarin was the first Coumarin uh, drug actually uh, identified. 
and it was identified because some cows ate some moldy hay and actually lost their ability to clot. Uh, and uh, we are leaky organisms. Uh, we are always self-healing in terms of our clotting mechanisms. Uh, warfarin uh, is an anticoagulant. Uh, it actually, uh, because uh, it's a slow-acting poison in terms of using it for uh, rat bait, uh, but it in low doses actually affects, uh, in a positive way, people who have clotting disruption in terms of their own health. There's a class of inorganic uh, rodenticides. Zinc phosphide is one of those. This has become a lot more popular uh, because of methyl bromide fumigation uh, has impacts on the uh, ozone layer. Uh, zinc phosphide will um, produce phosphine gas, a uh, very potent uh, uh, poison. Uh, so uh, zinc phosphide is used to keep uh, uh, rodents out of grain storage areas. Um, there's some unclassified uh, rodenticides, ergocalciferol, sodium fluoroacetate. Uh, ergocalciferol is essentially a vitamin D uh, analog, uh, vitamin D2. Uh, it actually is an overdose of a vitamin uh, and a good thing in very, very high doses. Sodium fluoroacetate uh, we'll talk about, but this is actually a chemical compound <coughs> produced by several spent plant species like astrolobium. Uh, in response to fluoride in their soil environment. And this particular chemical compound, uh, and you re recall that acetate is a part of the Krebs cycle, cycle. Uh, this is a very strong disruptor of the Krebs cycle, a very potent uh, uh, rodenticide. Uh, it has come through uh, since the mid-1980s uh, from uh, somewhat unrestricted use to highly restricted use. Uh, probably, most probably, because uh, the rodents that would be killed on this actually would be bait for uh, other carnivores and carrion eaters. Uh, some of these are birds of prey, uh, and there would be a secondary toxicosis of the second animal species, sometimes not the target animal species, because of the intoxication of fluoroacetate and the impact of the Krebs cycle. Some more pesticides, the amide herbicides, metallochlor, uh, it's actively used, uh, dinitrophenol herbicides. Dinoseb, I'll list on here, it actually uh, has uh, been banned from most uses, primarily not because of its toxicity, because its toxicity is relatively low, but because of its migration into water systems, into groundwater systems. Uh, it is a very soluble chemical, it migrates easily, and the idea of having Dinoseb uh, a yellow compound in, in one's water supply uh, is uh, uh, not uh, uh, a good idea. We have the uh, IMI herbicides uh, like imazepir. Uh, we have the OP herbicides like glyphosate. Uh, we show the chemical structure on this particular slide. Glyphosate is Roundup, uh, one of the GMO um, genetically modifications of several crops is to make it Roundup ready. Uh, such that the glyphosate mode of action on the particular plant has uh, been disabled. So you can use glyphosate, not kill your target species, but kill off all the surrounding weeds. It is interesting in terms of some Idaho history, the phosphorus that's in glyphosate actually comes from the Idaho phosphorus mines. Monsanto has a very active elemental phosphorus uh, development program because of our phosphate reserves in the state of Idaho. 
Some other pesticides, the phenoxyacetic uh, acid herbicides, uh, primary among this is 2,4-D, as you, we will hear it called. 2,4-D has been around for about 50 years. It's in active use. It has low mammalian toxicity. It's used uh, on many lawn applications. It's what you use to get rid of your dandelions. It's also used as an aquatic herbicide uh, to get rid of, for instance, your Asian milfoil. Quaternary ammonium herbicides, diquat and paraquat are out there. I've given the structure of this particular uh, chemical compound paraquat on here. One of the problems with diquat and paraquat, although they're very important uh, in many uh, production, uh, for uh, example, uh, cotton production and pea production to desiccate the leaves prior to harvest of dry peas or uh, harvest of um, the cotton, uh, this particular chemical compound has pretty good persistence in the environment. Its acute toxicity is very low, but it has the potential to cause oxidative stress. It's one of the classic oxidative stress modeling compounds. We will talk about oxidative stress when we talk about target organ toxicology. There are thiocarbamate herbicides such as molinate, triazine herbicides such as atrazine. Atrazine has been particularly problematic because of its tremendous use, especially in the U.S. corn and soybean production areas. It, and its uh, metabolites have significant uh, ability to contaminate groundwater supplies. When we talked in the introductory parts of the lecture about uh, detections of uh, uh, pesticides in water, in, in fish, finished drinking water, uh, over about 60 to 66 percent of the detections were actually atrazine-type chemicals. And so this has been problematic. Uh, if you go to the Midwest, uh, typically you're going to be exposed. Is this exposure above a maximum contaminant level or MCL? No, uh, but it still is an exposure at a low level. And so the risk basis of the exposure is low or below levels of concern. Sulfonylurea herbicides are a somewhat modern advance in herbicides. And these, uh, in terms of designer chemistry, uh, actually are the same branch of chemistry of the, the sulfa drugs, if you will. In fact, sulfonylureas are used by diabetics in managing their disease. As it turns out, sulfonylurea herbicides have uh, very, very strong bioactivity towards target species. Uh, so typically, the, the largest concern in SUs, as they're called, is overspray because uh, it will kill many different types of plants. And so you don't spray SUs on a windy day. Uh, what is very positive about there is the very low rate of use, uh, grams per acre. Uh, historically, chemical compounds uh, in the 50s, like 2,4-D, were applied at rates of 1 to 10 pounds per acre. Uh, this is grams per acre application of a chemical compound that, in many cases, will biodegrade in three to five days. So here's a, an example of what might be considered to be a safer chemical it's very focused in terms of its target species plants, low mammalian toxicity, and it has uh, very low persistence uh, in the environment. Now, as we've discussed all of these chemicals, uh, you must think to yourself that uh, how did we get here? Uh, obviously, with the post-World War II development of, of chemicals and chemical responses to some of our challenges, uh, and in fact, I would say World War II was the first war that uh, people considered that 
we lost more soldiers to uh, bombs and bullets than we did to disease. Uh, one of the reasons for that was the advent of some of the chemical insecticides such as DDT to fight off ticks and lice that actually uh, transferred the typhus and malaria uh, to the soldiers. But as we've discussed in terms of our historical aspects of food toxicology, um, there was a tremendous change in, in concern about the human food chain as we kind of went from the farm in terms of a migration from rural areas into cities. And we had more and more of our food processed and managed by other people. And it was 1906 in the, in the publication of The Jungle by Upton Sinclair that actually gave us the uh, Federal Meat Inspection Act and then following the Fure, Pure Foods and Drug Act. Uh, that was the progenitor to the 1938 FFDCA or the Federal Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act which is still with us today with its amendments and that gives us a tremendous amount of legal authority in terms of managing the U.S. food supply. In terms of pesticides, we had the 1910 Federal Insecticide Act um, and in 1947 we had the first generation of FIFRA. And FIFRA is the key body of regulation of law for managing pesticides in the human food chain and the environment in the United States. Uh, FIFRA is the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide and Rodenticide Act and it has been followed periodically by modern amendments and the most recent of these and the most substantial of these was the 1996 Food Quality Protection Act. A little bit of his history if we revisit uh, what we've talked about in a previous lecture, the uh, FFDCA, Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act, in 1958 was amended by the Delaney Clause which essentially gave us a zero-risk cancer standard for residues and processed foods. The reason I put this uh, out there is because in, uh, with, a, with a picture of a, a Thanksgiving dinner is, is, as you recall, in 1959 there was a detection of aminotriazole in cranberry products and an impact for the first time ever in a very direct way of the human, I'm sorry, of the U.S. household in terms of cranberries and cranberries products being banned or discouraged from consumption. And so it got a lot of public attention. At the same time, it was a very important piece of law for a whole lot of reasons. We get our legal basis of monitoring mo in, in terms of monitoring uh, for, for modern use and application of uh, agricultural chemicals via several agencies, the EPA, the Food and Drug Administration, which is Health and Human Services, the FSIS, the Food Safety Inspection Service, which is USDA, and also the AMS, the Agricultural Marketing Service, a branch of USDA. The authority comes to those executive agencies via the bodies of law, FIFRA, FFDCA, the Federal Meat Inspection Act, uh, the Poultry, Poultry Inspection Act, and the Egg uh, uh, Inspection Act. Um, now EPA has, in terms of their share of the regulatory authority, they have responsibility for chemical registration, they do the risk assessments, they set the tolerances, and they look at the environmental impacts of pesticide use. FDA has a responsibility on the food side. Food has a tolerance assigned to it. A tolerance is a maximum level, a maximum concentration in a particular food. So for instance, in uh, potatoes, there will be a maximum concentration of the sprout inhibitor chlorprofam, or CIPC.
and that tolerance will have a specific regulatory background that if in fact there is more than that, that product can be banned and not allowed on the market. Um, FDA and the Food Safety Inspection Service and the Agricultural Marketing Service are, are three of the groups that have primary food monitoring responsibility. Now states can have primary primacy uh, under FIFRA and so state departments of agriculture, the State Department of uh, Agriculture of the state of Washington for example or state of, of uh, Alabama will actually be monitoring under FIFRA regulatory authority and pass through primacy of this federal legislation. It's passed through primacy and resources in terms of dollars, federal dollars to do that monitoring and enforcement. And so if there is a violative activity, a misuse or a, a tolerance problem within the state of Alabama, the regulatory responsibility will be with the state agency, the State Department of Agriculture, typically. And I think 48 or 49 out of the 50 states have primacy for FIFRA enforcement. The largest change in terms of the legal base for monitoring was the 1996 Food Quality Protection Act, or FQPA. Now, Pesticides, because they're they have potential for environmental impact, are also monitored uh, via some other, they have crossover uh, regulatory um, uh, monitoring responsibilities. The Safe Drink Drinking Water Act, because of uh, potential for exposure through water, there's an establishment of maximum contaminant levels for about two dozen chemical compounds uh, that uh, uh, actually can occur in terms of impacting drinking water and risk to drinking water. There's the Clean Water Act where we have NPDES or National Pollution Discharge Elimination System uh, discharge permits. These are permits to pollute. So if, if you are a company that has a discharge pipe that is going out into a natural water and you have something to do with pesticides, for instance pesticide manufacturing or use pesticides, you may have uh, an actual uh, maximum concentration on that discharge that you are allowed to put into that water. That is calculated on minimal, uh, if none, risk to the uh, receiving water. RICRA is the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act. This has listed waste and several pesticides and pesticide manufacturing waste. RICRA is used for management of hazardous wastes that are actively produced in, for instance, manufacturing operations or laboratory operations. Now CERCLA, which is uh, also known as Superfund, we're not going to talk about this too much, but this is hazardous substances typically of the historical variety. So for example, uh, a DDT production plant uh, in, uh, that was operating in Southern California that had a direct pipe discharge offshore and contaminated uh, uh, miles of sediment offshore of, of uh, Southern California that is managed under surplus superfund. There's no active uh, discharge happening. This happened uh, perhaps in some cases decades ago, but it's a highly contaminated area. So these superfund sites are managed under CERCLA authority. Now the FTPA, I've kind of hinted, has been a traumatic change. This is 1996. Uh, is in within all of our lifetimes uh, when things changed over. In fact, uh, the calls for change in FIFRA and how we use pesticides, how we monitor pesticides, actually started in the early 1960s and perhaps uh, by, by strong, strong part as a spin-off to Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring. 
Uh, Silent Spring identified uh, many of the concerns and problems that we had had through the historical use of pesticides uh, without a whole lot of monitoring or concern for, again, for the negative sides of using these uh, fairly toxic compounds uh, in the environment and the human food chain. Food Quality Protection Act was a response to decades worth of concern, uh, some legalistic juggling, uh, some uh, public awareness campaigns and lobbying by various groups, whether it be industry groups, agriculture groups, uh, or environmental groups. Um, what is pretty unique about the Food Quality Protection Act is that it actually adopted most of the recommendations that were actually on the table. Now, for those of you that uh, kind of have seen or understood or studied this particular area, you know that this is a very contentious area. The whole issue of pesticide use, the whole issue of pesticide residues in food has uh, an emotional impact on, on many, many people. The question in terms of those that are aware of how public policy changes occur, say, how could this ever happen? How could people finally come to agreement? Well, it came to agreement because push was coming to, to shove. And it has a lot to do with reflecting back on the 1958 uh, Delaney Amendment. It created what is referred to in common uh, discussion as the Delaney Paradox. It grew out of the Delaney Amendment that we had different sets of requirements for processed and raw foods. Uh, a residue of a cancer-causing compound was illegal in tomato sauce, but it was perfectly legal in raw tomatoes. The other thing that was uh, problematic is that in the technology to detect these residues in 1958 was substantially less than the modern technologies we've had that have come about in the past uh, 10 or 20 uh, years. And so the idea of the detection of any level, the zero tolerance, we could start detecting these cancer-causing agents sometimes just because the wind blew in the wrong direction uh, in a particular uh, application, but we could detect these at the parts per billion, the parts per trillion, and even lower, and therefore um, it was not the fact that it necessarily presented a cancer risk in terms of dose response, but that it presented a residue, a detectable residue. Push came to shove because this was a very powerful weapon in the hands of uh, anti-pesticide activists because now that you could see these residues, uh, you would be able to ban these uh, foods. And so many environmental groups, uh, Natural Resources Defense Council, others, went to court and said, uh, if we're going to have this law in the books, this Delaney Amendment, we should enforce it. And in fact, there were court decisions in 1993 and 1995 which agreed with them. If you are going to have a law in the books, you need to enforce it. There was a de minimis uh, statement that said, we're sorry, the law says any detection, there is a detection, this is a banned food product. Well, this was a serious blow uh, to uh, agriculture, uh, the use of pesticides in agriculture, and therefore provided a tremendous motivation to modernize and change, and a negotiating stick in, uh, to, to, to perhaps negotiate away the Delaney Clause as it uh, had appeared over the decades previous. 
Some of the motivation for change also occurred in a 1993 study, and this study is available if you Google around. It's called Pesticides in the Diets of Infants and Children. And this was a significant work by the National Academies of Sciences that essentially says, you know, guys, our dose model for pesticide risk assessment has been adults. Kids are probably far more at risk, yet they're not even brought up in the risk assessment risk discussions. And this went through a tremendous amount of uh, scientific review. And in fact, uh, there is a certain amount of what I'll call motherhood and apple pie to this um, that, uh, you know, hey, we're impacting our kids. And when you think about it, and I'll show you some numbers here, uh, kids actually listen to moms when they say eat your fruits and vegetables. Uh, it's a big part of their diet, therefore the potential exposure. And as well, these kids are uh, growing and developing. They're putting on weight. They have developing neurological systems. Therefore, some potential for uh, gross impact to residues that perhaps adults, uh, in terms of relative risk, uh, would be quite a bit less. Um, there was also some pressure from minor crop producers. Uh, the economic incentives to go through the registrations and all of the studies uh, for uh, small crops, for instance, celery or cherries or uh, other, other crops that aren't things like wheat or soybeans, the economic incentives weren't there for the pesticide manufacturers to develop all the data required for that. So the minor crop uh, growers that pretty much uh, grow most of the crops that appear in the fruit and vegetable um, uh, parts of our supermarket were actually petitioning for streamlining to make it cheaper and easier for them to get access to chemicals to maximize their productivity to impact their pesticide, their pest problems. The other thing was this was occurring in 1996. This is an election year. Things happen in election year. Everybody who's in Congress wants to take home something to, to tell their constituents that they've done good. Uh, it was interesting that the Food Quality Protection Act did not originate in Agriculture Committee. An Agriculture Committee has a certain sort of focus and bend to it. Uh, perhaps uh, some people would challenge it as more for corporate agriculture than for uh, organic agriculture or small agriculture. Uh, in fact, uh, this particular amendment had its uh, origins in the uh, Commerce Committee, which is more consumer-oriented. So you focus that, all of the uh, particular uh, perfect storm, I guess, if you will, uh, the aspects of this, and it led to a unanimous passage in the House and the Senate. It is rare, uh, my friends, to have anything uh, passed unanimously uh, in our political system. It was signed into law in August of 1996 by then President uh, Clinton. Now, one of the prime motivators for the Food Quality Protection Act was the National Academy of Sciences Kids Study, um, the diets, pesticides in the diets of infants and children. And again, I encourage you, uh, you can Google around and get an online version of that study from the National Academies. Um, the exposure to children uh, of, to pesticides is different from that of adults, is something that we've established. And the government needs to do more to address the unique risks posed to children. It just wasn't in our risk scenario development. But it should be. And if you take a look at uh, how uh, produce is consumed by kids in terms of the grams of a product, per kilogram body weight of the uh, uh, non-nursing infant subgroup per day, milk, apples, oranges, peaches, soybeans, pears, and carrots. Uh, 
these are very, very large, uh, important commodities. All of these have pesticide treatments in commercial production. But as it founds out, some of those actually have some of the highest pesticide residues of uh, any products uh, that are out there. And there were about 300 active ingredients registered on those commodities eaten by infants and children, yet, in fact, we had not done any risk assessment in terms of the amounts that they eat. On a body weight basis, kids eat quite a bit more than adults, okay? So their potential exposure, again, uh, grams per kilogram body weight per day is higher. And so this is, seems uh, very reasonable to you and I, and it was to many, many scientists. It's just that we had not codified it because of politics, perhaps, uh, into uh, the way we do risk assessment in regulatory science. So in 1996, we changed all of that through the Food Quality Protection Act. We used kids as the dose model, no longer as the adults. We codified additive toxicity. And what does that mean? We'll talk about this in some specific examples. But for instance, if we have a class of chemicals like carbamates that are cholinesterase inhibitors and organophosphates that are cholinesterase inhibitors, we actually should consider them. The mode of action of those two chemicals in terms of the toxic endpoint is the same. And so we should not look at them as different chemical compounds because they had the same mode of action. We should look at them as potential additive in terms of their toxicity. Well, let's look at aggregate exposure. Let's include things like drinking water, workplace exposure for farm workers, uh, the use of lawn chemicals tracked into the house. For the first time ever, a body of U.S. law actually incorporated uh, uh, a review of potential for endocrine disruption on these chemicals. And in fact, this was one of the big uh, stalling points uh, for implementation because we knew we wanted to look at potential for endocrine disruption, but we didn't know how to do it. And so it took us several years, the scientific community, to come up with the, the standard methodology to, to determine whether or not a particular chemical at a particular concentration was going to be a, uh, have a potential for uh, endocrine disruption. The other issue in terms of FQPA is we actually changed the standard in terms of regulatory authority for reasonable certainty of no harm. This is a massive change in terms of U.S. law. The other big aspect of FQPA is sunshine, the right to know, consumer right to know about the chemicals used in the human food chain. And so there was, before FQPA, quite a bit of the information, the regulatory required studies in terms of risk assessment were actually considered to be CBI, confidential business information. It was okay for the company registering the pesticide to see that data. It was okay for the regulators to see it, but it was locked in a safe afterwards. You and I could not see that. That has changed, and in fact, all of that information is available to us and to people that are concerned about pesticides in the human food chain. In terms of uh, FIFRA, it gives us the, the authority, the licensing authority, the labels or the license. So again, Next time you're in the grocery store, take a look at a label and see what you can see in terms of uh, how that particular chemical is supposed to be used. Uh, you will probably see a term on there that says it is illegal to use it in a way that is not specified on the label. FIFRA is one of the few risk versus benefit statutes that we have in U.S. law. It does give EPA very strong authority to regulate all of the evaluation data that's required to evaluate risk in, in human health and the environment. Uh, the registration is national scope. We talked about uh, primacy going to the states, 
but registration and tolerances, which are the legal limits, actually cross state borders, and so this is a national focus. The registrant-generated uh, data is used to evaluate the risk, so it's a cost of doing business. Just like in pharmaceutical studies, agricultural chemical studies, you have to provide data, uh, third-party data quite often, that says uh, that uh, this particular use will have uh, leave a certain amount of residue. There is a risk assessment process that is followed in terms of identifying the hazard, and that's through toxicity uh, testing and hazard assessment. Uh, there is a dose response uh, analysis where we try to develop quantitative toxicity. We do an exposure access assessment. Uh, how much residue is in the food? How much is in the water or the home or the workplace? And then we come up with a final risk characterization uh, where risk is equal to toxicity times exposure. And so we try to quantify that so it allow us to make informed decisions. That is why I introduced uh, today's lecture talking about that a residue is not necessarily risk, okay? Now in terms of a registration, there are uh, uh, as many as 70 specific tests, uh, millions of dollars of potential costs in doing these. These tests will take a look at human health effects and toxicology. It'll look at environmental fate. For instance, uh, that it does this particular chemical compound hydrolyze when it gets wet? Uh, is it photochemically stable? Is it lipophilic in terms of will it uh, adsorb to fat in the uh, uh, animal's body? Uh, and it'll take a look at the residue chemistry, and we'll talk about how that is uh, referred to as the uh, total toxic residue. The commercial development, like pharmaceuticals, is many, many years and many, many millions of dollars, and so there's a tremendous investment to get each of these chemicals, and we talked about hundreds of them, to market, and there is a tremendous commercial pressure to develop safer chemicals because uh, having a registration today doesn't necessarily uh, commit you to having a registration a few years from now if there are new problems that are discovered with that particular chemical. There is a concept of TTR, the total toxic uh, residue. Uh, when a chemical is used uh, in a particular uh, animal or plant system, uh, you try to get an idea of the uh, plant or animal's ability to metabolize that chemical. Um, what we're afraid of sometimes is whether or not the metabolism is going to uh, uh, toxicate that chemical, make it more toxic than it was, or more persistent. Typically, these studies will be done with radio-labeled parent compounds, and then they'll identify all of those metabolic products uh, via radiochemistry. Uh, the goal there is to try to detect about 80 to 90 percent of the residue. Uh, so if it's a radio-labeled carbon, we want to track it throughout the body in terms of uh, respiratory uh, elimination, fecal elimination, urinary elimination, for instance, if it's in an animal model. Uh, we'll also try and take a look at the effect of food processing and use of a, uh, a product as an animal feed. So we're trying to get a whole idea. For instance, if there is an agricultural byproduct uh, uh, that uh, potato peels uh, that are used as animal feed, and there is a uh, chemical uh, like chlorprofam or CFPC that is used as a, a sprout inhibitor, an herbicide uh, in potato production, uh, if that uh, material uh, coming from a potato processing plant is being used for animal feed, what happens to those residue compounds? Uh, so those studies are done prior to registration. So one of the uh, 
Other sets of studies that we want to do is ecological. Um, we take a look at acute and chronic uh, toxicity tests, uh, for instance, to aquatic insects, uh, to fish, uh, terrestrial in terms of uh, other organisms that are of interest uh, in terms of environmental quality. In terms of human health, uh, what we do is take a look at acute and chronic exposures. We take a look at populations and subpopulations, what are their eating habits, uh, uh, and then uh, we take a look at special protection for children. And so if a particular mode of toxicity for a chemical or metabolite is developmental or neurological, um, those typically are, are uh, greeted with a, a healthy dose of caution and concern and typically have uh, even higher safety uh, 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 factors uh, associated with their potential use. Now, how we get to the risk assessment, we need to do the toxicity and exposure analysis. We need to do the experiments. Uh, sometimes those are done in uh, rodents, rodent assays. We try to develop a uh, threshold effect, a no observed or no uh, observed adverse effect level, a no. And typically what we find is that we will take this null, this no effect level, and then divide that further by 100 for uncertainty. And that uncertainty has a lot to do with the fact we're using an animal model and the uncertainty that we might have some subpopulation sensitivity within the human population. So we take that null that we developed from a rodent assay and divide it by 100, and that gives us a reference dose. This is our dose response curve, and this gives us the ability to kind of quantify that. And here's the typical sigmoidal dose response curve, lowest observed effect level, no observed effect level. This is where we develop the reference doses off of the null. So we derive this from animal studies, the best available data uh, that we can. Uh, we try to quantify a null. Uh, we take that uncertainty factor um, to account for individual differences in species and uh, in the human subpopulation, and we come up with uh, a reference dose. Um, that reference dose is allowed to be considered as an aggregate daily exposure to a pesticide residue. We try to uh, allow that to be the maximum, so anything up to that maximum is considered acceptable through the regulatory science. So um, what we try to do is quantify what that reference dose is going to be, and we typically do that reference dose over 70 years' worth of exposure to human lifespan. We do have an additional mechanism risk assessment if it's a carcinogen, because carcinogens, as you know, are non-threshold effects. And so the reference dose developed for cancer is the dose that will not increase cancer incidence more than one in a million. Okay, the one in a million standard is a part of the Food Quality Protection Act. In some cases, it can actually be uh, enhanced to two in a million through special uh, applications. You essentially double the cancer risk, uh, if you want to put it that way. Uh, typically, even though it's a provision, it's not anything that uh, people are going to request because uh, it has to uh, actually accompany the tolerance that uh, the uh, cancer relative cancer risk for that has been doubled on petition. Um, the animal studies done at high doses and strapped at low doses is a part of the reference dose development for, uh, the, uh, for cancer. Now, tolerance is something that you take away from this lecture as being probably the most important deliverable of food regulation of pesticides. A tolerance is the final number. It's the quantity in a particular chem uh, food product or commodity. 
Okay, it's established by review of field efficacy data, uh, crop residue data, daily lifetime dietary exposure, and things like the reference dose. So it is the maximum legal residue level. And so that number will be five uh, milligrams per kilogram, or five parts per million will be the number. So if an assay comes back that it exceeds that number, that is a violative commodity that is not allowed in the food chain. Typically, it is burned, buried, or somehow other destroyed. If there is not a tolerance uh, for that, it is considered to be an adulterated food. There is an amount of uh, acceptance for uh, some of the residual chemicals like DDT that occur in very trace amounts, even in modern crops, due to historical contamination of the food chain. Now, there are some emergency situations where you have a pest or uh, infestation and uh, a grower is faced with losing perhaps thousands of acres of a crop, uh, growers or growers in an area, uh, due to a, a particular new pathogen or pest. Um, there is an application process for an emergency exemption to try and save the crop. And typically what they will try to do is come up with a tolerance uh, based on best available knowledge uh, uh, of that situation, uh, of that particular chemical, of that particular commodity. Now, if, as we head out across our borders into the international arena, we have our tolerances which manage the U.S. food supply, but we're part of uh, a larger uh, global marketplace. We export tremendous amounts of food and we import tremendous amounts of food. There is a system of international tolerances called maximum residue levels, or MRLs. They're established by the WHO uh, and the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization. About half of these are equivalent to U.S. standards. Uh, some are not, and it depends on a country-by-country -country basis as well in terms of imports and exports. Uh, in a quick look, about 20% of the U.S. standards are more stringent about 30% are less. And this has to do with the particular risk assessment processes and programs of uh, the particular country, whether it be Japan or Holland or the Netherlands, if you will. The theoretical maximum residue contribution is one way to uh, get to a tolerance if uh, you don't have good data. Uh, we try to do dietary exposures in terms of the food, water, and uh, workplace exposure non-occupational exposure as well. Um, we try to come up with an estimate of the residues consumed daily to get this theoretical maximum um, uh, concentration. Uh, and we come up with it if, in the absence of data, um, if we, we will go ahead and assume that the residue is equal to the tolerance. Uh, this is rare that, uh, that chemicals will be applied at those high levels. It's a worst case scenario. Uh, it's a high motivation for uh, user groups, whether it be uh, farmers or uh, by pesticide companies, to actually develop the data because of the worst case scenario will limit potential other uses, and this has a lot to do with the overall aggregate exposure. Um, they assume that it's at the tolerance level and that 100% of the uh, crop is treated and that there is no removal by cooking. All of these numbers, uh, as in terms of the uh, are, are for particular commodities, uh, for particular chemicals, are actually pooled together in something that has been called the risk cup. Um, each of these uses of a chemical for a particular commodity goes into this cup, and that cup cannot exceed 100% of the reference dose over a 70-year exposure. 
Okay. So typically before FQPA, people weren't really considering the aggregate exposure throughout your whole diet. They were looking at the potential toxicity associated with eating one pesticide uh, in one commodity. And so what we did is we took a, a what, what you might consider a very practical approach that you know it doesn't matter if this residue of a chemical comes from celery or from potatoes, it's still coming at me in terms of exposure. Let's pool all those exposures together in the risk uh, assessment process. It makes a lot of common sense, but it was hard to translate that scientific common sense into a regulatory science policy. And it took several decades actually to actually do it and incorporate it into the body of law. Safety standard that we have um, in FQPA establishes a strong health-based uh, safety standard, a single safe reasonable certainty of no harm. It's not uh, any, it can't be stated any stronger uh, in that the FDA commissioner essentially has to create this standard uh, for all regulatory decisions regarding uh, pesticides in the U.S. food chain. It's for raw and processed foods both. In terms of FQPA tolerances, uh, there was a requirement for tolerance reevaluation. So in 1996, we started a 10-year process to reevaluate all of those chemicals used in all of those commodities, look at the existing data, demand new data if it's required. And in fact, because of the new criteria, there was a tremendous washout in terms of uh, allowed uses of chemicals in certain commodities. Um, these were prioritized to make sure that we didn't wait till the last to, to look at the most uh, serious concerns, things like OPs uh, and cholinesterase inhibition, organochlorines, which had uh, tremendous persistence in the environment and in body fat, and chemicals that may have had developmental or neurotoxicological uh, impacts, especially with kids. And so these were targeted first in terms of the relative risks, uh, if they had higher relative risks uh, rather than later. So you saw more insecticides early on and herbicides later, perhaps. In terms of uh, the new law, um, it took a look at common toxicity mechanisms and additive toxicity, and we reviewed uh, additive toxicity as 2 plus 2 equals 4. Uh, for example, neurotoxicity such as cholinesterase inhibition that come from organophosphorus, OPs, or carbamate uh, insecticides. In terms of an exposure, in terms of the toxic endpoint, there is no difference if I'm getting cholinesterase inhibition from organophosphates or whether I'm getting them from carbamates. I'm still getting the same toxic endpoint. And so there is a risk cup implication because the reference dose is additive, okay? And that's an important concept because that limits the amount of potential neurotoxins regardless of the name of that neurotoxin if it has the same mode of action, the same toxic endpoint. That is a substantial change. Cholinesterase inhibition, we'll talk about a lot when we talk about uh, target organ toxicology, but just as a briefing here, that we have uh, a neurotransmitter. Um, it's a chemical mediator called acetylcholine. It actually transmits the uh, nerve impulses across the uh, neural synapse. Uh, there is uh, a modulating enzyme called acetylcholinesterase that actually uh, diminishes that impulse uh, so that it controls that impulse so that it, it turns on but then turns off. 
if you inhibit that enzyme, you have repeated impulses and uh, the neuron actually uh, doesn't stop firing. It has uncontrolled firing uh, over short periods of time. In terms of aggregate exposure, this was also a development of the Food Quality Protection Act. It was used in the calculation of risks, so yard uh, chemical, household chemicals, drinking water, and unoccupational exposure. You know, as it turns out, uh, much of our water is groundwater. Groundwater has a potential impact from leachable chemicals. We've talked a little bit about atrazine uh, in the U.S. Midwest and the Corn Belt, um, and that aggregate exposure is actually used in the risk calculations because if you are going to be getting a trace amount, non-toxic in terms of its potential concentrations in things like drinking water, if you're going to be getting it through drinking water and through your food consumption, that additive uh, uh, exposure is of important in the risk assessment process. For the first time ever, we also incorporated endocrine disruption review in these chemicals. These are chemicals that uh, hormones are, are, are bioactive chemicals. Uh, they are uh, potentially very responsive in very small doses in terms of their target uh, uh, activity. Uh, sometimes we have a false key in a lock uh, that, in fact, uh, for, for example, there are some chemical compounds that look like estradiol that fit into the receptor and actually initiate the cascading response uh, after that hormone uh, receptor interaction. So these false keys uh, will cause potential disruption in the endocrine system. Uh, the uh, endocrine system consists of these glands and the hormones they produce and the pituitary, thyroid, adrenal, the ovaries, and the testes. And so there is a reproductive consequence in terms of uh, changing us and who we are. Um, these hormones that uh, change and challenge the endocrine system uh, are biochemicals uh, and the uh, chemical imposters, uh, potentially uh, endocrine disrupting chemicals that might be used in agriculture, are ones that mimic these particular responses. Another big challenge uh, that the Food Quality Protection Act gave us was enhanced consumer right to know. Um, the uh, FQPA required a couple of actions. Uh, they required a uh, pesticides and food brochure to actually be placed in all grocery stores. Uh, for a few years, I saw them out there after 1996. I haven't seen them uh, for quite some time. Uh, probably if you asked, you could find a pesticides and food brochure or enhanced information about how to make wise choices, informed choices about food quality and pesticides and the relative risks and the risk process. This is a general public information document. Uh, uh, it isn't necessarily a technical bulletin. The biggest change, though, was the publication of data summaries in the Federal Register. You, I, or anybody can open up the Federal Register and get raw data summary reports about uh, the potential toxic effects uh, and the test results of chemicals uh, used in the human food chain in the United States. This is a big development because, as I've said before, it was uh, previously treated as confidential business information. Uh, some of this is harsh data, and uh, I think we all have a responsibility to interpret it correctly. Uh, the fact that you see at a, uh, in a toxicity trial, you see lethality in rats, uh, you see the presentation of clinical signs and symptoms in test animals at very high doses, 
That's a part of the risk assessment process. It isn't necessarily a way of communicating risk at trace residue levels. And so we use that information to know when the no adverse effect level occurs in these species. And then we take that as a, at least a factor of 100 less than that level. And if it's developmental or a neurotoxic, uh, probably another factor of 10, equaling a total factor of 1,000 safety level below uh, the observation of any sort of animal um, pathogenesis. Well, I'll finish up today with uh, um, a pesticide food, food poisoning incident. This, this particular uh, incident, uh, the California watermelon incident, is, is something that uh, shows what happens even if you have a good system out there, um, but poorly educated individuals in terms of uh, what the relative risks of pesticides are, these economic poisons, and how we have to use them extraordinarily responsibly in the human food chain. This is uh, a... Um, uh, a link here, and uh, I provide a link in this particular lecture uh, for uh, the uh, Centers for Disease and Control publication called Mortality and Morbidity Weekly, which actually does have case uh, analyses of uh, uh, things like uh, these situations. Uh, this particular report reads, uh, at 4 a.m. July 4, 1985, three adults uh, who ate a solid green watermelon purchased in Oakland, California, had rapid onset of nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, profuse sweating, excessive tearing, muscle fasciculations, and bradycardia, rapid heartbeat, if you will. Aldicarb, a carbamate insecticide, and potent uh, acetylcholinesterase inhibitor, not registered for watermelons, was found in the samples. In the next month, 762 possible or probable cases were reported. The most severe signs and symptoms included seizures, loss of consciousness, cardiac arrhythmia, hypotension, dehydration, anaphylaxis. In fact, uh, in terms of looking for mortalities, uh, one individual was actually, um, uh, did die, but uh, had some extenuating circumstances in terms of uh, poor health, ill health uh, beyond that. But this gives you an idea of what happens when things go wrong, when the system of controls that we have for using these economic poisons in the human food chain is, is somehow uh, circumvented. The individuals, as I read uh, this particular report, found that by using this chemical, the watermelons would take on a lot more water that would grow bigger. Uh, since agricultural commodities uh, have a value on their poundage, uh, there was an economic benefit, although an illegal one. What they didn't understand was that there's a reason this particular chemical is not registered in that commodity. Uh, it's because it actually does uh, 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 concentrate in the fruit part of it uh, and it doesn't uh, disappear as a systemic uh, uh, pesticide. So this gives you a very classic example of the uh, responsibility that pesticide applicators, that uh, agricultural practitioners that use pesticides uh, have in terms of their relationship with consumers. Now in terms of our relationship with our food, uh, pesticides, it's a part of who we are. Uh, we can choose, uh, we can have a preference uh, for organic foods or non-pesticide treated foods as much as possible. As it turns out, this is a very difficult choice in some cases, a very expensive choice, and some people don't have that choice. In terms of a cheap food system, uh, pesticide residues uh, in food are a part of our present and uh, going to be a part of our future. 
in terms of the context of food toxicology, we have a responsibility to understand the process, the risk assessment, and contribute to the ongoing evaluation of the risk involved in pesticides in human food chain. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time.